0: You'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. This is the Straight Up Breakdown Podcast with Greg Smith and Jay Foreman. Tell it to me straight up. Hello and welcome
1: into the Straight Up Breakdown podcast, proudly part of the Hale Varsity Network. I am Greg Smith. Your I am definitely staying into in the house until we get out of this deep freeze, friend.
0: <laughs> I am Jay Foreman. You're, again, once again, snow shoveling, snow blower, <laughs> uh, African American Eskimo. So I am out there in the elements way too much.
1: Hey, listen, I'm not going back out there. I tell my wife, man, if we get more snow, it's up to God. Like, I'm just not, I'm not doing it. Like, I looked at that snow, and there's not even that much that's sitting in the driveway right now, but I'm, I'm leaving that out there. Like, we just don't <laughs> have to, we just gonna have to rock with it. You,
0: you're just gonna let nature take its course? Yep.
1: Uh, now, I wish we were on the other side of the street because the people across the street, they, their houses face the correct way for the sun. So once it gets going and we actually see the sun again, their stuff will melt up nice, we will still be slipping and sliding. Uh, but that's just what it is right now.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it gets pretty dicey out there. And, uh, you know, you know, I feel for those uh, guys driving those big, you know, 18-wheelers and then you got people, in, you know, rushing to get, get places. And uh, I think it was Saturday it was at a little bit of a black ice and it was real a little windy. So it was, you know, it's tough. Uh, it's it's tough uh, circumstances out there and it's not fun. I mean, look, when when you, when you turn it, when you turn the TV on and they, you know, they usually say, Oh, it's, you know, 634 and it's minus 11. Yeah. And it's like, this is the stuff you think about what people that live in Alaska. You remember when you watch those shows and they're up there in Alaska and they have like 30 days of sunlight throughout the whole year. it's right. always We're in the middle of the United States of America. Then, You turn on, you know, then you see down in Houston and Dallas, they they got snow and stuff like that. So it's uh, it's definitely snowmageddon, and and it's the the cold temperatures that are really really bad.
1: Yeah, it's yeah, we're at that point now. It's just it's kind of crazy because, like you said, you turn it on. Like I'm gonna look at the watch right now. My watch right now says it is negative 11. My watch, this is ridiculous. My watch says the high is negative two and the low is negative twenty six today. That's ridiculous. My uh, mother in law called us yesterday down in Mississippi and said that they were it was going to be single digits. I think she said eight degrees and they were pre- preparing uh, for sleet, ice, and and some snow early this week. So, you know, they're not ready for that. You mentioned Houston. I saw some other places down south, places up in the Pacific Northwest, Portland getting snow. It's like everybody except for Miami is basically way below what they're supposed to be right now.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny that uh, you know, that there's only a few places. I talked to a couple of buddies. They were out in Desert Palm or whatever. And, you know, it was like 85 degrees. I was looking Dude. at it. I, I don't even know how to even fathom we, it seems like it's been so cold for so long that you only, you, you know, you can't even imagine it being, you know, 90 degrees, you know, remember a like
1: hundred degree difference from where we are.
0: <laughs> right. It, I mean, just think if you go somewhere where it's 70 degrees, right. It's like 85 different 85 degrees warmer. And so, um, you know, it's part of it right now. And, um, uh, you know, it's tough sledding. So you get, you got to just battle through it. And so hopefully, you know, when you're looking forward to what Wednesday or Thursday is going to be a, a, like a high of 18, that's still right.
1: cold. <laughs> right. But again, it's 30
0: more degrees. So it's, uh, you know, and then, uh, you know, hopefully there's some sunlight and, you know, melt some of the snow and, you know, get people in a better mood
1: hopefully we'll we'll get through it and like you know it's funny the theme of today's show is kind of like being mentally tough right you definitely got to be mentally tough uh through that snow and we definitely gonna start out with the, with our opening segment that we always start out with what we call coach speak where we go over something that a coach play or a talking head said and then we'll give you the straight up breakdown of what you what they meant coach speak to real talk Um, And this week comes courtesy of Nebraska men's basketball coach Fred Hoiberg, who said this after last night's win over Penn State. I couldn't be happier for these guys finding a way to get over the hump and getting that feeling of winning. Uh, The other thing I reminded them of, as we talked about after the Illinois game, is that two of the hardest things to put behind you are big emotional losses like we had the other night. And we found a way to do it and then get a big win like we had tonight. Um, it was a great moment for the men's basketball team who we definitely, like I said, mentally tough pushing through all of that. So, Jay, what did he really mean coming after that big victory?
0: Well, I mean, what he meant is like how you deal with with, with uh, success. And, um, you know, it's been a long road for for Nebraska to get there. It didn't look like it was ever going to happen. Um, they are really, really close to, you know, obviously beating one of the top teams in the whole nation, uh, talent-wise and obviously record-wise in Illinois. Um, didn't give them a chance at the end of regulation, so that kind of, you know set the the tone for overtime then to get on uh the road and go out to play you know Penn State and, and they're a tough team. Yeah, the,
1: and nobody out there, wins out there, yeah. yeah. the
0: play out there and the win uh was big for him. So he said, "Look, it is is you know you you, you got to remember what what it took to get there and then use that as a positive and never forget." Sometimes when and this is funny where I was when I was thinking about it I remember being down in Houston and, you know, when we won the first game and then we got our second victory a few weeks later, you know, sometimes um, when you haven't built up enough winning culture and winning results that people think, okay, I I won one game. That's it. Now I'm going to just kind of relax. Now what he really means is this is a time to really crank it up and and look, we put two good performances back to back and realistically you can sell it. Like we should have won the last two games. We only won, but we're one and one. So let's continue along this process. We're playing better than uh, we have, you know, at any point, you know, throughout the whole season, more consistent. And especially it should be an uptick in um, positivity because you're coming off of just being, you know, three weeks on the bench or on the shelf for COVID. So, um, you know, it's something that, uh, you know, I think that I would would be very surprised that if they didn't make, ideally, this next practice really, really hard to kind of get the focus away from, okay, we did it. Let's, you know, kind of you can relax and practice a little bit. You want to make it harder to kind of, hey, man, this he's serious. This is this is not anything that, you know, take as a joke. So, um, you know, he's trying to get the guys focused and motivated to do more, and he's been in enough winning situations and won enough as a coach to know uh, this is when you got to push harder once you, uh, you know, get that first taste of victory.
1: Yeah, and and it's really because for a few few reasons it's crazy because their ability to fight through after losing that close Illinois game in overtime after having the lead late, um, and like you said, they should have won that game, to then it had been 403 days and 26 straight conference losses since they last won a conference game. So to be able to push through that, get close against the top 10 team, have that heartbreak, and then bounce right back and not only win the game, they played well for the vast majority of that game. Um, and, you know, they had this Nebraska basketball, so they had to make people a little nervous um, down the stretch. And that happened. I think that showed a lot about that team. So that's on one hand why in the program and what Fred is kind of instilling in them. And that's why, for one on one hand, it's really interesting. The other piece of this, though, is that, you know, you mentioned kind of like, hey, they need to come back and double down on those good habits and really, you know, reinforce that in a tough practice is, you want to do that, but based on their schedule, like how much are they going to be able to do that? Because they're playing every day now. Now after coming off of that long layoff where they had 30 days in between games, and man, that was that's such a long time um, to go, they're now going to play 11 games between February 6th and March 7th, so they get no break. So then to be able to kind of say, it's really big, I think, for the team to get that, what should have been a win, and which would have been a huge win, and if they still get a big victory, um, Um, that following night but to then say okay we got a little confidence now going into what is a really tough stretch of games where it could be really easy to just kind of fall apart Um, and now I definitely I don't expect them to fall apart like they'll have some more losses in there of course Um, but I think that they'll continue to play well because that confidence should carry them through and really help propel them through what could be a really challenging stretch of basketball for them.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, you know, there's two ways to look at it. Like, you you, you want to play as much as possible, and, you know, and but there's only so much your body can take, right? Um, and you know, and also your 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 I guess your basketball clock is off because you're used to you know maybe playing on Tuesdays and Saturdays. That's the way it usually kind of works in in conference play. But now you're going to be playing every other day. This is like almost high school, and you're playing you know a ton of games. And so the positive thing is that if you catch in getting to a good rhythm, you can obviously get some victories maybe catch some teams that have been playing the whole season, a little bit worn out. Um, and then also if you get some young guys, um, you know, some, some more, you know, time, you can get some depth. So uh, it's a catch-22, but if you go about it the right way, I think it can come out the, uh, you know, the back end on some positive, with a positive uh, outcome. The biggest thing for them is really, really starting to come into, uh, I guess, fruition of the team that they are. What they have, who can play certain roles, and then really, really hone in on that. You can't have the game where uh, everybody's kind of playing within the team, and you kind of maybe have your two or three guys that you can count on to get you buckets, but then somebody gets hot, and then you know you kind of get the you know the you know uh, you know everybody's going to point to Teddy Allen where he's going to start you know either moping around on defense or getting a couple getting himself out of the game within you know a couple fouls and bad shots. So you got to get everybody uh, continuing along the process of the team concept of basketball um, and also, you know, really, really work on the shooting because they're getting, they've always got shot, gotten shots.
1: Yeah. That's been the weird thing. That's the the funniest thing is just,
0: yeah, they're they're a power five school with guys that, you know, obviously play basketball, love it. And the shooting has been the problem. It usually has been stagnant offense, kind of the same type of offense. Everybody, and this is the great thing about it. Everybody's getting a chance. This isn't an offense where, hey, give the ball to Greg Smith and sit back and watch him do his thing, right? right.
1: I could cook, though, if you needed me
0: to. Oh, okay. Well, then we're going to have to get a taste <laughs> of that, right? And so then, but, uh, but what I mean is it's an equal opportunity offense, and if you do the right, right. right things, you can uh, you know, score a lot of points and be effective. So, you know, look, either you got to put more time in or find a way to uh, alter your shots and make more shots because the offense is there, the opportunity is there um and it will be for the rest of the season it's not like that we've you know went through you know three or four games where guys weren't getting open shots there's tons of open shots so we got to start hitting them and that's what you've seen weirdly in the last two games and uh you know you saw the first couple games when they played they the legs weren't underneath them i think they're starting to get their basketball legs back so hopefully that means that that'll lead to more victories and more explosive offense as well
1: Yeah, and and I'm glad you mentioned the basketball legs because eventually what's going to happen though too, without playing all of these games in a short amount of time, that tends to lead to shooting kind of coming and going because your legs just aren't there, right? You start seeing those shots hit the front of the rim um, instead of going in or going long. That means the team's a little tired. So hopefully the team also realizes that you can hang your hat on defense a little bit too, right? That you need to be able to use that defense to create some offense um, and not just rely on how good the offense of sets are to be able to create that that will make life um, a lot easier for them as well
0: yeah and it's uh you know when you can kind of hone in on what you do well hopefully it just becomes a habit now for these guys right and then when it becomes a habit the work habits the you know the the team concept then hopefully that'll lead to better execution in the game and so maybe you know, this is going to be the turning point where, look, you you know, they came out there playing against the Illinois. Maybe you could always say, oh, they, maybe they weren't um, motivated. I don't believe that. You know, I think that they knew um, anytime that you play in the Big Ten, you can, you know, you can lose, and the Big Ten is good top to bottom. You know, in Nebraska, obviously, been towards the bottom, uh, you know, throughout the last two years. But you can't take a night off, and so they they got their best shot. They handled their business, um, and then they were able to double down on it. And so, So whatever they've been doing the last two or three uh, weeks leading into uh, these last, you know, three games, they need to really, really focus in on that. And everybody needs to really, really embrace it and not think we need to do more, right? You know, oh, well, we got a victory. So now let me try to get mine off or I'm going to try to do that. Um, The betterment of the team is also going to be better for the individuals as well. So we'll see how they go. And the biggest thing is, and, and look here, you can have a direct correlation to, the football program, and I don't mean to, you know, you know, throw shade or anything like that, but it's just with these kids and you haven't won enough that how do you handle success? How do you handle a good game? How do you handle a big victory? Can you do it more than once? And we've seen it and we've seen it in the basketball program and in the football program for quite some time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and it's crazy too, because it kind of dovetailing off of that is it it made me kind of think, and I don't know why, and we'll see, I want to see what, which, team throughout professional sports you think of when you, when you think of this topic, but like there's always been kind of these long losing streaks within sports. um, And you try to see if the, you know, kind of that scrappy underdog can kind of rise up and kind of elevate kind of where their program is. When I think of something like that, for some reason I always think of the Detroit Lions, um, yes. who has not ever been able to really come out of that. Um, and I don't know why that is. Maybe all the years of the, the Lions being in the same division as the Bears makes me kind of gravitate towards that. Remember going back to their season, uh, their winless season, where they were kind of going through that. And you just wonder, yeah. like, how does somebody come out of this on the other side? And, it, and for them, with the Lions, it really hasn't, like, they really haven't come out of that. Um, out of the other side. And you see some other teams that kind of go through like down periods and then it really flips. Like, like the Warriors in basketball were in a down period for a while before the Steph Curry, um, Draymond Green, Clay Thompson kind of thing took off for them. They were not very good, but they kind of ramped up a little bit slower because they had made the playoffs before that. And there's other examples, like who do you think of when you think of that team or program that struggled and then are kind of struggling to come through the other side of that?
0: Let's break that down. Uh, definitely the Cleveland Browns. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you got to think they had a, not only a winless season, but they had a, you know, losing the playoff, not even making the playoffs. And they were just horrible for so long. And then obviously you see this year, um, you know, going through multiple coaches in the last five years and Baker Mayfield actually playing good and having some better talent, uh, they made the playoffs. So th- that's the first team that really came. It was the, it was the Cleveland Browns, and I thought about Detroit. Um, you know, those are, those are the teams that are like that all the time, and, and uh, it's good to see Cleveland doing better. And it's weird with Detroit. I, as, you, as you mentioned Detroit, I always, men- always thought about Detroit playing on Thanksgiving Day, and they would be always <laughs> be playing either like Dallas or somebody that was really, you know, having a good season, the Packers. And then they would play. They would play great on Thanksgiving Day, and, and beat them. And then, th- and then the next week, playing a team that you think that they would, you know, either you know play well against or you know have a realistic realistic chance of winning, and go out there and lay an egg and lose like thirty one thirteen without even a glimpse of uh, anything they showed on Thanksgiving Day. So I think those are the two teams that I think of going. You know, just you know, popping in my head. You could always throw the Jets in there, but there, I think the Jets is more of a systematic or, you know, administration dysfunction. Um, and, but those two teams, Cleveland and Detroit are the, you know, really, really long-term losers. And I don't know whether it's like where they're at, like, in, you know, you know, position Detroit isn't a, you know, a glamorous city um, and neither is Cleveland. And the fans are kind of like that. And they've always seemed like they've had the short and the stick and, and all the sports really that they major sports, professional sports that they've had.
1: Yeah, and it's crazy too because I was thinking about it. He was saying that the other team, like the Pistons, recently definitely post—I um, I, say post Isaiah Thomas, but post like the Grant Hill time. Even though they weren't winning like championships during the Grant Hill era, uh, but the other team that popped in my mind in the NBA, Washington, the Wizards. Yes, like that's a team. And it's funny because now when you start to think about it, though, honestly, all of the teams that we have mentioned kind of have something in common. I like guess a lot of dysfunctional ownership. Right. Like the the leadership up top has been dysfunctional. And that's been like that with the Wizards. I'm trying to think of like in my lifetime, like watching sports, like I'm trying to think of what the best Wizards team was, even though it might be now The well, I'll take that back. There's two of them that come to mind. There were a couple of years in there with Brad Beal and John Wall before Wall started getting hurt um, where they were making playoffs and they were tough outs. They were losing to like um, LeBron and the Cavs a lot, but they were making the playoffs. But then before that, the team that really needs, like, all the books and movies and 30 for 30s with, like, Gilbert Arenas and Antoine Jameson and Javaris Crittenton and all of those guys, I think Matt Barnes might have been on those teams. Um, like, those groups. Like, though, yeah, though, that Wizards team, man, they've been losing, it feels like, our entire lives.
0: Yeah, it's 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 uh it, the funny thing in professional sports, Winning and losing, and of course it's it's always gonna be tied to talent, but they're professional athletes, right? Right. It's really, really tied to ownership. And you're talking about the Wizards, which used to be the Bullets, and, and back that you gotta think they really weren't a serious team. Um you know, up and you know, even they were a good team. I think when actually when they had uh, Chris Weber and Jawan Howard and those guys, right? Right. Like, you know, the John Wall and them. I think that's when the East was really on a downturn. All the good teams were in the West, and it was just the Cleveland Cavaliers and say the Celtics and you know the you know the the Wizards would get in with like you know a record of you know. 39 and, and 43 or something. <laughs> right. You know the me?
1: magic with Dwight Howard were pretty right. good.
0: Yeah. They were good for a couple of years, but you know, the, they were, the wizards were, were always like the eighth or seventh seed, you know, depending on LeBron They wanting to be the one or two seed and, and you know, how they want to get to the NBA championship. You know, when I was thinking about a team, that's a perfect example of how ownership can uh, be really, really good. And a team could be, you know, really consistent and then just take a downturn based on, you know, their decisions is the Philadelphia Eagles when Andy Reid yeah. was there, and even the first obviously few years with Doug Peterson, they were always you know applauded for their draft, their ability to continue you know being uh, having winning seasons and always being in the playoffs, and then being tough out in the playoffs, and then obviously winning the Super Bowl, right? Yep. Then it just seemed like it changed overnight. I don't know whether it was Carson Wentz, but there just seems to be a disconnect between all three levels: owner, GM. And obviously, head coach. And then you see the new head coach where you had to really do go down four or five different articles to find out who their coach was or is now. Right. He just came out of nowhere. And so now you look at Philly, you don't even have the same respect for them. They're going to blow that team up. All that talent that they've accumulated and all those great players that they've had, it's just been gone or just will be gone. And so that shows you how important ownership is, which then leads to fan expectations, player expectations, and then obviously the expectations overall as your, as your franchise. And it can set you back, uh, you know, years and years years upon years. I mean, we're talking about the Cleveland Browns, and remember they had hired their GM, who actually right now with the talent that they had kind of is, is – you see what he was thinking about when he was trying to take the baseball, you know, money ball approach – to build up their roster. Um, so the ownership is, is huge. And, you know, I think when you see it in, um, you can, you I mean you see it a little bit in, in college uh, but it's, it's a little different because there's, you know, the president's involved and it's not just a, the, the uh, athletic director, but um, you know, it's, it's not going to change when it's big money. There's, you know, the guys that are pulling the strings are the guys that are writing the checks and accumulating the cash. So uh, it'd be interesting to see how this, you know, really moves forward um, both with professional off-season I think that I think as the years go on, um, there's going to be a lot more movement. Um, and so the longevity of winning, um, I think, is going to be shorter in the sense of you're not going to have, I wouldn't say dynasties, but the continuation of uh, winning on a consistent basis.
1: Yes, it'll be tough to replicate kind of like you. And when you think on that end of the spectrum, you know, the, the Pittsburgh Steelers, um, you think about the Packers, like teams like that, that have just been consistent winners like that. And it's hard. And I'm glad you mentioned college, too, um, because it's it's kind of college is almost like when your team gets good after being really bad for a long time. And honestly, the first two or like that had struggles and then they're trying to get out of it. The first thing that came to my mind, really old big 12 foes, uh, Iowa state and Kansas, it almost feels like you have to catch, you can catch lightning in a bottle in college, but it's so dependent on who you got as the head coach. If you got the right head coach and if that guy can hold on or if you can hold on to him, and if, you know, they're actually doing the right things long-term. And so you, when you think about those two examples of Kansas and Iowa State, Kansas was really bad forever, right? And then they catch like in a bottle, uh with Mangino. And then it turns yeah. out they got some shady stuff going on, and he has to go, and they've not been good since then. Um, and we'll see kind of what happens with Les Miles. On the other side, though, with Iowa State, they have been awful forever. And then Matt Campbell comes in. you got a strong leader um, that is a really, really good coach. You make more of an investment into your facilities and what they have got going on, and you can do it. It's just such a different process to really take a downtrodden team – school and and college sports and that's why it's so bringing it back full circle why it's so difficult I think for what Fred Hoiberg is trying to do um, to be able to really build up Nebraska basketball like that is a really tough challenge um, because you're really getting into institutionalized losing uh, when you start talking about some of these college
0: programs. Yeah it is because they've lost for so long and then you know Nebraska is not a basketball school and then I think that when people think of basketball schools, you think of, like, Kansas. So, uh, you know, the only way that Nebraska basketball is successful is if we start reeling off, like, conference championships like Kansas or, like, say, like, you know, the ones in the Big Ten and, you know, like the Michigan's, Michigan State's and stuff like that. Well, we you got to have the certain expectations of what you want as your basketball program and then go out and recruit and obviously hire coaches uh, and have, you know, the administration staff within that program Uh, you know, to execute that. So, um, you know, of course, Nebraska basketball needs to be better than it has been before Fred Horberg got here. But then you have to go and really, really, you know, really, really find out what you want that basketball program to be. And that's what it has to be year in and year out. That's how you recruit to it. And a perfect example is like Creighton. Like Creighton, of course, the last, say, like 10 years has been a really stable program. Um, But the players that they recruit kind of like their, I call it suits. Like, you, you, of course, they have, you know, Doug McDermott's and guys that are really special, but they always have the same guys in other positions, right? Yeah. One kind of really good player, and then, you know, same, they kind of look the same. Now, here's a perfect example of a basketball program that was, I call, a blue blood or a basketball school that's lost their way, which is, say, like Georgetown or St. John's, right? When they are really, really, you know, going, they had big guys uh, shooters, NBA type of players, and then you haven't really had a respectable program for both of those schools for, give or take, you know, the odd year or two for about, you know, 15 to 20 years. Yeah, it's so been a
1: while since Georgetown a while. and St. John's were really competitive, like just really good, yeah.
0: Yeah, so that's the thing that it can change. And and when you think of schools and that still have, it, you know, Georgetown's kind of like Nebraska in, in football. They still have, like, uh, cachet. You know right. what I'm saying? When when they're on TV, you're like, oh, man, the Hoyers are playing. We're, you know, we got to watch them. And we're probably, like, thinking about, you know, when they had Lonzo Mourning, Patrick Ewing, Matumbo, and all those guys. But you're still going to turn on the TV. Same thing with Nebraska. Oh, Nebraska's playing. Yes, they know Nebraska hasn't been in the national, you know, spotlight since, say, like 2001, right? Or just say, like, 2009, because obviously with Sue and stuff like that. Right. But it's been some time. It's been over 10 years. And you'll still turn on the TV and watch. And it's not – Uh, something that's ever going to go away. So those schools are in a better position than say Kansas. I think Kansas is a school when you take over as a football coach, I think you're fighting an uphill battle like Les Miles. You're getting kind of, I I think Les Miles is going to be a hall of fame type of coach. But I wouldn't call him a reject. But I think you're getting a coach on the back, super back end of his career. If your analogy of golf, you're not on the back nine; he's on the final three holes, <laughs> trying to get that last little like golden parachute. So, how much are you getting a real Les Miles that was eating the grass, or the guy that built up Oklahoma State? You know what I mean? And then you have that factor, then the assistant assistant coach factor, because all the really good assistant coaches, or you know, his he's probably at his second third, fourth choice at each position. Maybe there's some young diamonds in the rough, but you're not getting the same type of continuity from a coaching staff standpoint because the guys that he had when he was at LSU are off doing their own thing. And so they're not going to go to Kansas to be the linebacker coach. They'll go to LSU, Arkansas, Missouri, and be co-defensive coordinator, linebacker coach, DB coach, or assistant head coach. You get what I'm saying? So. It's hard for those teams or those those schools to make a turnaround. The best way that they could do it is kind of like the Bill Schneider uh, deal with uh, Kansas State football. You know, if they got twenty five scholarships, eighteen of them are JUCO guys, or high, twelve of them are JUCO, or fourteen of them are JUCO, and then you you know you hit on some you know some guys that you can build a program. You got to do that two or three years, and then you just go from there, and then um, then you can start recruiting you know high school seniors and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, and it's crazy because you it, it also, there's a thing, too, where you have to also handicap it for kind of the changing and evolving landscape in college football, right? So it's different trying to do that, you know, 20 years ago when Bill Snyder was trying to do it versus what they're trying to do now. Um, because now it's, it's crazy just thinking about it from recruiting. So it, maybe bigger schools wouldn't have come into Kansas to steal the recruits that Kansas or even Kansas State would have been able to get if Les Miles is trying to rebuild that program. But now, if there's a good recruit out there, they're going to find him, right? Like, so sure. if you got a guy like, for example, actually Turner Corcoran, um, Nebraska is now starting left tackle, who was a high four star kid, one of the top um, offensive linemen in the country in his recruiting class. Like, maybe he would have been more likely years ago even to stay, you know, right there at home in Lawrence and go to Kansas. But now everybody knows about that kid. Like, there was no hiding him kind of off the radar. And doing that, whereas maybe you could get into that years ago, um, but that also levels the playing field um, because now, and it's it's those kids are now even more comfortable leaving home too. Like you, you still have the high majority of really highly recruited kids will stay in the area now. It's not necessarily in state unless they're from one of the down south schools where like you have multiple in state schools. So if you're a, a big time player in Florida, yeah, it's going to alter that rate because you have multiple um, schools that you could go to to stay in state um but most of those kids are staying in region um which is why it then becomes such a big deal for say schools like Nebraska or even Kansas um when you're trying to recruit making you go national because you just don't have that base um in your region though that's kind of changing here over the last handful of years where the kind of vaulted 500 mile radius um has really taken an upswing and I think that there we're going to look back at this period of time and somebody is going to benefit from all of these kids um elevating their games in this region, right? Like we're going to look up in a couple years and be like school X really found a way to build their roster based on all this talent that's in this Midwest region.
0: Right. I mean, look, you know, the great thing about, I know people are like, you know, with Dickerson, you know, going to Oregon and, and, you know, uh, Johnson going to Iowa, people are like, Oh, you know, you're losing these kids. It's, It's actually a good thing. It's good thing for them that they're able to get out on a national you know, national exposure and go to different schools. You want to have options, right? Yep. Um, but then it's also good for the state of Nebraska, and it's also good for the University of Nebraska. Now, where the pressure comes from is that you got to make sure that you have an appealing product and program um, for these kids to stay home. Right. Because um, that's you, the
1: equalizer, because if the, you make it to where they want to be there and it's fun, they will. then they eventually say, oh, there's no need for me to go elsewhere to find what I'm looking for because it's right here up the road.
0: Right. And that's, and it, and that, and it's twofold, right? It's all the glitz and glamor, which I think you get more here than anywhere else because you're the only show in town. You still have the national cachet and respect, um, it, you know, it, it, you know, it's it, it, in some form of fashion, um, not the, but the biggest thing is now we got to get to where we're, you know, respectable on the field. Now it's not as easy as people think, right? Thanks. Right. And so we're at the point that where you got to really sell a really, really tangible vision Tangible opportunity and have the right kids that want to do it now. And so, as you've seen, there's been some turnover, and you got to kind of weed those kids out. And that's where you know it gets a little bit tricky because people these days don't have patience. And the reason why they don't have patience is because Nebraska was so good; they've never been bad up until you know, obviously, recently. In these, like, say, like last ten years, right, where it hasn't been consistent. And so, when you're striving for more, and you're and you're you're not, and it's not quick turnarounds. There's a little bit of jealousy going on, but what people don't understand, it's easier to turn around a program that maybe has a bigger pool of talent. You know, say like you know UCF or you know say yeah, what you know, uh, the you,
1: guy at Florida State is trying to do. Florida, yeah. Florida State, where
0: you know you're going down to the Seven Eleven and and you know right around the corner, you got two guys running four or five, and they're three or four star recruits, and they're just you know just need a little bit of seasoning to go to. And Now Nebraska is you know high school. Uh, you know, football is really, really starting to take off. And I think that uh, these camps has helped it. I yep. think that the, you know, the specialized the, academies, the specialized academy, the Warren Academy, I want to definitely give love to that. But then also I think that the social media and stuff like that has helped, you know, and I saw it also in, in Minnesota, you see a lot more national kit or a lot of, kid, a lot, look, we got a couple here on the Nebraska's roster. Right. And, but I think that also you, you turn on the TV and I remember Alabama, the guy that got drafted he from, you know, Roseville, Minnesota, where social media has helped these kids get exposure because back when, say, like I was getting recruited or even a little bit after or even recently, just say 15 years ago, they were like, oh, no, you know, you, you're in the state of Nebraska, so you're automatically, you know, a tick or two lower. And there's still a little bit of that because a lot is predicated on if Nebraska's offering you or when. Right. But when you go to – when you were had the ability to go to these camps – They don't care where you're from. You know what I'm saying? And then your champion matches it. Can you play? And so that's really helped these kids. And then it's also, you know, hopefully it helped the program. You got to think now where you think of, you know, I obviously look at all the linebackers, but you know, in the state of Nebraska, you got two guys that are getting national love right now, one from Burke and one from Columbus. And then you got all the multitude of guys at Bellevue West that seen, I mean the two tight ends, it's it's like a a race to see who gets more offers of big-time schools. I just saw Helms. Got an offer from University of Miami. Obviously, you know Nebraska will probably love them, but it's really, really a good thing. Um, but it's also makes it makes it harder. And it's not a bad thing if kids go other places. Um, and you know, it's the opportunity that they they want to do. You know, right off the get go. But I will say this: just because you hear no the first time, or they decide to go to X school the first time, if it doesn't work out, you want to make sure that you have the door or opportunity to, you know, hit them in the, in the transfer portal, because even if they decide to come say like in a couple of years, that's still creating that longevity of that lasting impression. Right. So when they are dealing with their high school coaches, they like, Hey, look, I'm coming back to the university of Nebraska, coming back to Nebraska. And if it all works out, you know, that's almost like you win twice in recruiting. So, um, Look, it's a good thing and then also look if teams are coming in here looking for our players that means we can go there and look for their players it's not like you know there's not a unlimited amount of scholarships for kids for for these you know universities to have um a lot of times they you know they go out and offer 400 kids knowing that they're only going to take 20 and um so ultimately i think nebraska's in a good position now they just have to get it out there on the field and i think that if they get it out on the field for a year or two, whenever that happens, obviously I'd like it next year and a year after, um, that they will actually have a problem where um, they're not taking enough in-state or Midwest kids within that 500-mile radius. I think the the old thing of like, oh, you only can get speed from California, Texas, and Florida, or like, you know, Alabama, I think that's, that's long gone because there's so many uh, trainers out there, football academies, like I was talking about the Warren Academy, um, the former football academy. I'll talk talk with, you know, I'll give me a shelf of sh- shameless plug. There's tons of opportunities out there. And plus these kids are training a lot earlier. And I was just talking to, you know, a former teammate about it where, you know, these kids are coming in um, ready physically a lot, you know, a lot more than when we did. Like when I showed up on Kansas Bay campus, I never lifted weights. So, my ceiling was super high where these kids and that's why where people were like, oh, well, we haven't seen You know, when they come in as a freshman, you know, they only gotten a little bit better by the senior year. You senior year. Well, yeah, because they've already been in a college type of program in high like school, they were
1: maxed out in high school.
0: They were already kind of almost maxed out and say if there's a max out percentage of 100, they're showing up at campus at the University of Nebraska or, or wherever at like, say, like 83 percent. So that jump isn't that big. Now there's other schools that, that take more projects and guys that did that needed to be developed. Like say like um, Michigan state, obviously before Mel Tucker got there, that's what they, that's what they built their program on. They would bring you in there, you know, put you through the meat grinder for two or three years. And by the time that you were a red shirt sophomore or junior, you were a grown man. But what you looked at as an 18 year old definitely wasn't what you looked at like when you left. And so it can be done that way. Um, and you can do it both ways at the same time. You just got to be really strategic about it. But I think it also um, is predicated on the talent pool. But I think that building a program, a national program uh, off of, uh, you know, the 500-mile radius is, is something that's going to be coming here pretty soon. Um, is It's not going to be a 100% roster of, say, like Nebraska, Iowa, North and South Dakota. But I think that when you show up, you'll have your – certain players from certain areas that are mixing in with these guys. And then it'll kind of be like a roster of, you know, the 500, I would probably just put it to 700 mile radius, you know, and then sprinkle in some coast guys. And I think that's what you need to do because look, it is different. The way you play football in the Midwest is definitely different than what you do out there on the coast. It takes a special kid to come here from say like Texas, Florida, let's just do Texas, Florida, Florida, In California, it takes a special kid to come here, embrace it, embrace the weather as we look out here, you know, (laughs) those those guys are holed up probably in their apartments right now. So it takes a special kid to stay through this and grind through it. And then also uh, be accustomed to the Midwest way. way. So you can't have, you can't go build your whole roster, kind of like Mike Riley. Oh, we're going to get a whole bunch of California kids. Well, they, you just, you know, just decimated your depth because none of them can make it past year two or three. So you need your special guys that are able to come here and, and do well, and they have to be good athletes as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's just there's, its just so hard. Um, it's, it's just hard to build a program trying to go that way, and that's why I kind of like um, what's happening. Is I've written a lot about at hillbarsity.com about how I like where things are heading with, with more kids from the area because I think that that last point – it sounds it sounds like a no-duh thing where you're like, oh, well, if you get kids from more kids from the area, um, they're used to kind of the elements. They're used to just the lifestyle, all of that, and, and it's just such a big deal because it seems like something that you should be able to go grab guys from anywhere and then teach them, right? If you got a quote-unquote strong culture, you can do that, but you are raising the degree of difficulty by a lot relying on that for the bulk of your roster right like you can do it sprinkle it here and there and you've got other guys maybe to give examples of that are already on your team and they can take a guy under their wing um, that's a lot easier to manage versus if you flip it and try to have the the majority of the team um, be in that way and that's why it'll be kind of interesting over these next couple cycles here because I think it started here this last one to see how Nebraska goes with that but um, every week we end the show with our segment called Put Them On Blast, uh, where we basically put somebody on blast for something that they did or said. Put
0: them on blast.
1: Now, this week, I, I've got to go with ESPN. Now, it's going to sound like at first that it's Dana White, which he definitely deserves it as well for sure. Uh, we'll get to why it's uh, ESPN the roundabout way. So over the weekend, Dana White uh, took a shot at Ariel Hawani over uh, Gina Carano's uh, anti-Semitic post that Drew put pushback from a lot, including former ESPN employee Dan Levitard. Now, if you don't know, go check it out. There's a long history between uh, MMA journalist Ariel Hawani um, and UFC president Dana White. Like They've gone through the ringer um, together. Uh, But Hawani made some comments. Um, after Gina Carano, who was a USC star-turned-actor, got fired uh, for posting anti-Semitic memes, um, and then White defended her and took a shot at Hawani, who is Jewish, for his coverage of that. Dana White said this, and I quote, Leave Gina alone, White said. Listen, we all make mistakes. We all make mistakes. For everybody to go in on her, I love how Ariel Hawani made it all about him. It was just all about him. He's such a douche. First of all, (laughs) Like Dana, what are we doing? You need to be put on blast yourself for defending the things that she posted. But on the other side of that, why ESPN is actually the recipient of this getting put on blast is because ESPN, I, as of recording this on Monday morning, unless I've missed it, has not put out anything saying that what Dana White said was wrong about their own employee. Like he would, they Dana White went in on their employee and they've done nothing like i'm i assume this is because espn is still a ufc rights partner and they don't want to make him mad because they're in bed with him basically um but it's ridiculous to me that they would not come out and at least defend their guy who is a jewish man who obviously and like it shouldn't matter that he's jewish because everybody should take offense to what she did um in that particular case but like you gotta have your guys back, right? Like if I'm um, Helwani, I gotta be looking at the bosses sideways, like, hey, you know, like, what does it take for y'all to actually come out here and stand up for me? So for all of that, I'm putting ESPN on blast. With a side of Dana White need to be on blast. So we can't leave him out of that since he's the one who said this foolish mess in the first place.
0: Yeah, it's it's, it's weird that uh, you know I was looking at ESPN, uh, you know, about what the the Wheeler guy out there in Seattle and how much coverage that got. Right. And right. then versus like, you know, there's always that big thing they did. You know, there, it was a, you know, whether it was, you know, BSO or just what they've had it at. Whereas like when Ben Roethlisberger and Michael Vick, they both were going through their things on ESPN and how many times they ran to Michael Vick versus Ben Roethlisberger. Um, ESPN again, has picked and choose. I will see, you know, Dana White brings a hundred, you know, I'm assuming hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, um, you know, to ESPN and is obviously a big stronghold in that, you know, their market for USC, which has continued to grow and will continue to grow. So they're choosing money over their employee. Now this shouldn't come as a surprise because ESPN has had, two or three, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say massive layoffs, but they've had surprise layoffs. And then when you yeah, hear and talk, all
1: of them being outspoken people or not all right. of them, I should say, but the most, some of the most high profile ones have been people that have been outspoken, Yeah. You
0: know? Yeah. And so when you think about it, th- it this isn't new how it's kind of went down the pipe. And so if I was an employee or, an, you know, a, a on air personality, I would not be surprised, um, uh, you know, where those lines, you know, where, they, where they're where they going to, you know, be more, you know, I guess cultivated to, which would be, you know, Dana White. So I, I'm not surprised that I would be looking over my shoulder and probably looking to, uh, you know, move, but that's just the way it goes. I mean, you got to think of all the different shows, all the different personalities, how, how people have left. You, know, you hear the stories of, of, you know, how things ended. And it almost seems like it never ends well, even for guy – even for like Chris Berman, a guy that kind of – I mean, he built ESPN.
1: Right, Dan Patrick was,
0: there. was like that. Dan, Dan, Dan Patrick, for a guy to say, you know what, I'm actually going to go do do my own thing because I hate you guys. And Keith Olbermann, when he left, remember, he was outspoken. They brought him back, and then they're like, oh, no. So it, it's, it's something that, uh, you know, that uh, is uh, – I'm not surprised, but I guess if I was him, I would be. I wouldn't be disappointed. I guess it, you can think about it. Here's the funny thing about it: you can hear about it, and I could see, like, say you go through it, but then until you go through it, right, it, you don't feel it. It's almost like you know you have a sick family member, and you and you know that they're in hospice, and but until you get the call, say they're not going to be here anymore, it doesn't hit you. And I think it's hitting him right now. I, I can guarantee you he's upset um, because it had nothing to do. It's just weird. It seems like a layup, right? Or couldn't they just pick up the phone and say, Hey man, you know, look, I'm I'm assuming, and I don't get into religion, politics, or you're, you know, you know, it doesn't matter to me if you're African American or what, you know, if you're Jewish or Catholic, I don't even really, sometimes even know the difference, but I'm assuming with ESPN that you have some big money people uh, that are of the Jewish religion, right? I'm assuming. and, And that's just me. Um, Those would be phone calls that I think that would be called up there, like, dude, what's up? (laughs) You know, and so it's going to be interesting to see how it goes forward if they make a statement. But the way they handled the Wheeler thing with the domestic violence let me know uh, where they are and where they stand on some certain things.
1: Yeah, it's just like you're going to have to, and we're also going to come to a point. I and I actually assume that we already would have gotten here. But with Dana White about him representing the UFC, because that, people don't realize Dana White doesn't own the UFC. He's the, the face of the of the place. But at some point, they're going to have to look at that, the, the people above him, and say, hey, like, man, can we have you out here saying all this? Unless they're with him 100% lockstep, and we just don't know that, right? So they're, they're going to have an interesting crossroads um, with that, too. But, uh, Jay, who are you putting on blast?
0: I am putting on blast, and this has to be it. And I gotta, I gotta continue. To, I gotta put. I'm, every time I get a chance, I'm putting this dude on blast. I am putting Johnny Manziel Uh-oh. on blast because he is quoted as saying, "If the NFL calls, he isn't answering." Now he plays in this uh, fans controlled football league, which you know is kind of you know. I mean, it's, I wouldn't say it's pretty cool, but it's you know something to watch. That it's innovative, yeah. Yeah, and it's something just to kind of waste some time uh, and he was horrible in, 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 in his debut. Um, You know, he he threw for a touchdown ran for like 60 yards. It's kind of like indoor football, but you know, really the fans are controlling it. These weird uniforms, it's almost like it looks like if you're playing like Madden and you, and you got to create your own team in a jailhouse football league, these are what the uniforms look like. So he goes out there and lays an egg and he's kind of been off the, He's been out of the spotlight. You know, he, he was on the golf channel talking about he could be a professional golfer, which I think he grew up on a golf course and he's actually pretty good. But then he says that if the NFL calls, he isn't answering. Listen here, Johnny, I'm going to tell you one thing and one <laughs> thing only. Okay. This is a news flash to you. The NFL is not calling you. They haven't called you last year. I don't think they called you the year before. You're not good enough and you're a first round bust. And so just do what you're doing. Don't even try to act like you have an opportunity to come back and play it may be if Canada calls, I understand that, but I'm putting you on blast for sitting at, for really pimping yourself out there and trying to act like you still have an NFL career, which you have, which you did consciously screw up, you, you know, from your rookie year to the, you know, for all the other times to, you know, going around to different teams and having an opportunity. So look, there might be some buyer's remorse or, you know, a little bit of regret on his part, but I got to put you on blast. We're trying to act like the NFL is still calling you. Calling you, and if they are calling you, they're saying, "You know what, bad. my bad. I butt dialed you from an old phone uh, that I've had, you know, for a couple of years."
1: <laughs> I mean, that's basically what it is, and it it's crazy because Johnny Manziel is in that situation. I think where it's a really rare. And it can be profitable if you play it right. Well, you're basically just getting attention and money for being yourself, for like being the personality that is Johnny Football, right? Like, and there's only a handful of those folks out there, and eventually that ends. So he's got to, and I feel like he's one of those, he's trying to throw everything against the wall um, to see what kind of what sticks, but also saying, still saying crazy stuff. Like if you see him on social media, he's still like, I, he must search his name because he is always ready to clap, clap back at somebody for saying something about him or Texas A&M or his career or anything like that. Um, And he's on that real dangerous line of just falling into irrelevance. Um, And maybe that's what drives some of this crazy stuff, because I'm with you, man. Nobody in the NFL is calling him, at least not on purpose.
0: No. And, you know, the best thing that he could do is really, you know, come to terms with, I guess, his Johnny football. I mean, he's he's a Heisman winner, so he's always going to kind of make some sort of income from – From yeah, he's always got that from like signing autographs, and I'm sure there's something that they always get. And then, and actually, you know, I wouldn't say go out there and do better, but yes, go out there and do better. Really, come to terms with it. He could probably kick butt, like especially down there at Texas A&M, if he got his act together, and be some sort of liaison football camps. And if he wants to play in this league, and if he really, if he really, here's the funny thing about it. I don't think he really. I think he liked football. I think he loved all the glitz and glamor. And I know it's hard for those guys that go, you go from essentially he was, he kind of came out of nowhere and won the Heisman. So then you're on the mountaintop. So everything else is kind of like not good enough. Right. But then when you come out to the NFL, like they don't care that you won the Heisman, like you're playing against the best of the best. And it's hard for somebody to really go from loving the glitz and glamor. I think he thought he loved football. But then the reality came in. He didn't love football. He loved all the attention. And the attention went away very, very slowly because his game on the field was horrible. And so if he could ever have, uh, you know, come to Jesus and, and really get into it, he could actually, you know, I would say have like a rehab project, but really rehab his image. Because right now he's a joke. You know what I'm saying? I, I mean, if he walked in like somewhere I was I'd be just laughing. Like, dude, you had it, you had the NFL in the palm of your hand. And within like 18 months, you just. Right, you know
1: because it hadn't happened immediately, because it was it. Right. He got drafted. He coached. Was this one who went draft, got drafted, and then went immediately to Vegas and started talking about how he wasn't studying the playbook. Right, <laughs> it, right. Yeah. Then on
0: top of it, then on top of it, he he ended the season and didn't go to the end of the, the end of the season meeting because he had a hangover.
1: Yeah, like see, and that. Would, that yeah, but that's the that, type of stuff that, of all the things in the NFL that I can get you, like what people really aren't calling you. It's that sort of stuff because you said this a handful of times. Like, it's such a small fraternity of people that all know each other and come from the same organization and work together. And like, people talk. Like, it's, it's hard to overcome that once that gets rolling against you.
0: Yeah. And also, here's the thing about it. They're going to, dr- here's the thing about the NFL for people out there that want to listen. And, Understand it, especially for you guys that think that you want to go play. The NFL is—I might overestimate, but ninety-nine percent of perception, it really is. They kind of give you like a—I call it like a shelf life when you come in. What type of player you are, and you spend so much time breaking that, right? If you watch the draft, right? Here's what people do: all everybody's like, "Oh, who drafts Who? What my team? What my guy? You know, who drafts who?" Right? And they, you know, all the you know, the highlights and they, you know, I'm always, I like that Tack McKinley. He <laughs> always, always tweeted out every draft. Day. <laughs> Tack That's McKinley that. interview with Deion Sanders. But if you really, really look at it, if you look at the scouting reports, what they do, they tell you everything that you can't do. 80% of it isn't true, but they have to say something and they always focus on the negative. So it is perception. So here's what I mean by that. The things that you hear in the media about him being late to meetings, and am talking about Johnny Manziel or a player being late to meetings or being immature or you know the stuff that he's doing, going to Vegas, which all is his is factual because that's where social media, you know, started. Yeah, to take off social media got enough. him. And, yeah, <laughs> right. And, and but he's dumb enough to go to like Caesar's Palace at 6 p.m. instead right. of going to the high stakes table and going in a you know a secret entrance. Right? He wanted to be seen. So the things that you read about is just probably a small percentage that people see on a day to day basis. Right? they're not going to say Tom Brady's late to meetings and sleeps all time. Right. But they're but when you hear about a player being late to meeting or meetings or X, Y, and Z, that's not the first time that they've done it. Right. That's just a, you know, a third or fourth time. This is a funny thing about when you guys being suspended for like weed or something. That's not the first time that they've been caught. You've, you've failed the idiot test three or four times. You know what I'm saying? So it's just, it's just, part of him it's part of his career and really he could do probably really good for you know going around right now I'm thinking of of the guy uh, Chris Herring who was a who was a really really good basketball player from Fresno State played in the NBA a little bit but kind of just squandered his same type of deal came out uh, was really really good uh, got into some trouble but now he's kind of really you know, reinvented himself. He goes around and speaks at all these different, you know, Under Armour camps, Nike. But he talks about the pitfalls that he fell into, kind of like Johnny Manziel. Johnny Manziel could do that. I mean, he was the – I wouldn't even say – he was like the All-American story. He wasn't highly recruited, gets in there, wins the Heisman. The, he was the first quarterback to show how you beat Alabama, right? right. And won the Heisman, and he had pretty much college football – media in the NFL at the palm of his hands. And then in a a very short time, uh, he lost.
1: Yeah. And it it ended up, it started off as a great story, like you mentioned, and it kind of ends now, just a, a cautionary tale um, of what not to do. Uh, but that's a great place to leave it for today. Subscribe to, to the podcast everywhere that you listen to them. Rate us, review us. Um, leave us a five-star review if you leave four. I am inclined to think you're a hater and nobody wants that like Shaq. Uh, make sure that you are checking out the other podcasts on the Hill Varsity Network, the Mind Your Own Podcast, Varsity Club, more to it, and the Hill Varsity Radio Show. You can also check out the Hill Varsity YouTube page. And we have an email at straight up breakdown at hailvarsity.com. And you can get after us on Twitter at Greg Smith HB and at Foreman 5644. We will catch you next time. that production.